You are listening to a Dr. Martin Luther King Day special on Love Babs Love Talk, streaming live from our studios in downtown New Haven on WNHH LP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. I want to use as a subject from which to preach this morning a very familiar subject, and it is familiar to you because I have preached from this subject twice before to my knowing in this pulpit. I try to make it a something of a custom or tradition to preach from this passage of Scripture at least once a year, adding new insights that I develop along the way out of new experiences as I give these messages. Although the content is, the basic content is the same, new insights and new experiences naturally make for new illustrations. So I want to turn your attention to this subject, loving your enemies. It's so basic to me because it is a part of my basic philosophical and theological orientation, the whole idea of love, the whole philosophy of love. In the fifth chapter of the Gospel as recorded by St. Matthew, we read these very arresting words flowing from the lips of our Lord and Master. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you, that ye may be the children of your Father, which is in heaven. Certainly these are great words, words lifted to cosmic proportions. And over the centuries, many persons have argued that this is an extremely difficult command. Many would go so far as to say that it just isn't possible to move out into the actual practice of this glorious command. They would go on to say that this is just additional proof that Jesus was an impractical idealist who never quite came down to earth. And so the arguments abound. 
but far from being an impractical idealist, Jesus has become the practical realist. The words of this text glitter in our eyes with a new urgency. Far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, this command is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. Yes, it is love that will save our world and our civilization, love even for enemies. Now let me hasten to say that Jesus was very serious when he gave this command. He wasn't plain. He realized that, that it's hard to love your enemies. He realized that it's difficult to love those persons who seek to defeat you, those persons who say evil things about you. He realized that it was painfully hard, pressingly hard. But he wasn't plain. And we cannot dismiss this passage as just another example of oriental hyperbole, just a sort of exaggeration to get over the point. This is a basic philosophy of all that we hear coming from the lips of our Master. Because Jesus wasn't playing, because he was serious, we have the Christian and moral responsibility to seek to discover the meaning of these words and to discover how we can live out this command and why we should live by this command. Now first, let us deal with this question, which is the practical question, how do you go about loving your enemies? I think the first thing is this. In order to love your enemies, you must begin by analyzing self. Now I'm sure that seems strange to you, that I start out telling you this morning that you love your enemies by beginning with a look at self. It seems to me that that is the first and foremost way to come to an adequate discovery to the how of this situation. Now I'm aware of the fact that some people will not like you, not because of something you have done to them, but just, they just won't like you. I'm quite aware of that. Some people aren't going to like the way you walk. Some people aren't going to like the way you talk. Some people aren't going to like you because you can do your job better than they can do theirs. Some people aren't going to like you because other people like you, because you're popular and uh, because you're well-liked, they aren't going to like you. Some people aren't going to like you because your hair is a little shorter than theirs or your hair is a little longer than theirs. Some people aren't going to like you because your skin is a little brighter than theirs. And others aren't going to like you because your skin is a little darker than theirs. So that some people aren't going to like you. They are, they're going to dislike you not because of something that you've done to them, 
but because of various jealous reactions and other reactions that are so prevalent in human nature. But after looking at, it, at these things and admitting these things, we must face the fact that an individual might dislike us because of something that we've done deep down in the past, some personality attribute that we possess, something that we've done deep down in the past and we've forgotten about it, but it was that something that aroused the hate response within the individual. That is why I say begin with yourself might be something within you that arouses the tragic hate response in the other individual. This is true in our international struggle. We look at the struggle, the ideological struggle between communism on the one hand and democracy on the other. We see the struggle between America and Russia. Now certainly we can never give our allegiance to the Russian way of life, to the communistic way of life, because communism is based on an ethical relativism and a metaphysical materialism that no Christian can accept. When we look at the methods of communism, a philosophy where somehow the end justifies the means, we cannot accept that because we believe as Christians that the end is pre-existent in the means. But in spite of all of the weaknesses and evils inherent in communism, we must at the same time see the weaknesses and evils within democracy. Democracy is the greatest form of government to my mind that man has ever conceived. But the weakness is that we have never practiced. Isn't it true that we have often taken necessities from the masses to give luxuries to the classes? Isn't it true that we have often, in our democracy, trampled over individuals and races with iron feet of oppression? Isn't it true that through our Western powers we have perpetuated colonialism and imperialism? And all of these things must be taken under consideration as we look at Russia. We must face the fact that the rhythmic beat of the deep rumblings of discontent from Asia and Africa is at bottom a revolt against the imperialism and colonialism perpetuated by Western civilization all these many years. The success of communism in the world today is due to the failure of democracy to live up to the noble ideals and principles inherent in its system. And this is what Jesus means when he said, How is it that you can see the mote in your brother's eye and not see the beam in your own eye? Or to put it in Martha's translation, How is it that you see the splinter in your brother's eye and fail to see the plank in your own eye? This is one of the tragedies of human nature. So we begin to love our enemies and love those persons that hate us, whether in collective life or individual life by looking at ourselves. A second thing that an individual must do in seeking to love his enemy is to discover the element of good in his enemy. And every time you begin to hate that person and think of hating that person, realize that there is some good there and look at those good points which will overbalance the bad points. 
I've said to you on many occasions that each of us is something of a schizophrenic personality. We are split up and divided against ourselves. That is something of a civil war going on within all of our lives. That is a recalcitrant south of our soul revolting against the north of our soul. And that is this continual struggle within the very structure of every individual life. That is something within all of us that causes us to cry out with all that the Latin poet, I see and approve the better things of life, but the evil things I do. That is something within all of us that causes us to cry out with Plato that the human personality is like a charioteer with two headstrong horses, each wanting to go in different directions. That is something within each of us that causes us to cry out with Goethe that is enough stuff in me to make both a gentleman and a rogue. That is something within each of us that causes us to cry out with the Apostle Paul, I see and approve the better things of life, but the evil things I do. So somehow the isness of our present natures is out of harmony with the eternal oughtness that forever confronts us. And this simply means this. That within the best of us there is some evil, and within the worst of us there is some good. When we come to see this, we take a different attitude toward individuals. The person who hates you most has some good in him. Even the nation that hates you most has some good in it. Even the race that hates you most has some good in it. And when you come to the point that you look in the face of every man and see deep down within him what religion calls the image of God, you begin to love him in spite of, no matter what he does, you see God's image there. And that is an element of goodness that he can never slough off. Discover the element of good in your enemy. And as you seek to hate him, Find the center of goodness and place your attention there and you will take a new attitude. Another way that you love your enemy is this. When the opportunity presents itself for you to defeat your enemy, that is the time that you must not do. There will come a time in many instances, when the person who hates you most, the person who has misused you most, the person who has gossiped about you most, the person who has spread false rumors about you most, there will come a time when you will have an opportunity to defeat that person. It might be in terms of a recommendation for a job. It might be in terms of helping that person to make some move in life. That's the time you must do it. That is the meaning of love. In the final analysis, love is not this sentimental something that we talk about. It is not merely an emotional something. Love is creative, understanding, goodwill for all men. It is a refusal to defeat any individual. When you rise to the level of love of its great beauty and power, you seek only to defeat evil systems. Individuals who happen to be caught up in that system you love, but you seek to defeat the system. 
The Greek language, as I've said so often before, is very powerful at this point. It comes to our aid beautifully in giving us the real meaning and depths of the whole philosophy of love. And I think it is quite apropos at this point. But you see, the Greek language has three words for love, interestingly enough. It talks about love as eros. That's one word for love. Eros is a sort of uh, aesthetic love. Plato talks about it a great deal in his dialogues, a sort of yearning of the soul for the realm of the gods. It has come to us to be a sort of romantic love. Though it's a beautiful love, everybody has experienced eros and all of its beauty when you find some individual that is attractive to you and that you pour out all of your life and your love on that individual. That is eros, you see, and it's a powerful, beautiful love that is given to us through all of the beauty of literature we read about. Then the Greek language talks about philia, and that's another type of love is also beautiful. It is a sort of intimate affection between personal friends. This is the type of love that you have for those persons that you are friendly with, your intimate friends, uh, people that you call on the telephone and you go by to have dinner with, and your roommate in college, and that type of thing. It's a sort of reciprocal love. On this level, you like a person because that person likes you. You love on this level because you are loved. You love on this level because there's something about the person you love that is likable to you. This, too, is a beautiful love. You can communicate with the person. You have certain things in common. You like to do things together. This is philia. The Greek language comes out with another word for love. It is the word agape. Agape is more than eros. Agape is more than philia. Agape is something of the understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill for all men. It is a love that seeks nothing in return. It is an overflowing love. It's what theologians would call the love of God working in the lives of men. And when you rise to love on this level, you begin to love men not because they are likable, but because God loves them. You look at every man and you love him because you know God loves him and he might be the worst person you've ever seen. And this is what Jesus means, I think, in this very passage when he says, love your enemy. And it's significant that he does not say, like your enemy. Like is a sentimental something, an affectionate something. There are a lot of people that I find it difficult to like. I don't like what they do to me. I don't like what they say about me and other people. I don't like their attitudes. I don't like some of the things they're doing. I don't like them. But Jesus said, love them. And love is greater than like. Love is understanding, redemptive, goodwill for all men so that you love everybody because God loves them. You refuse to do anything that will defeat an individual because you have a copy in your soul. Here you come to the point that you love the individual who does the evil deed while hating the deed that the person does. This is what Jesus means when he says, love your enemy, this is the way to do it. When the opportunity presents itself for you to defeat your enemy, you must not do it. Now for the few moments left, let us move from the practical how to the theoretical why. It's not only necessary to know 
how to go about loving your enemies, but also to go down into the question of why we should love our enemies. I think the first reason that we should love our enemies, and I think this was at the very center of Jesus' thinking, is this, that hate for hate only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe. If I hit you and you hit me and I hit you back and you hit me back and go on, you see, that goes on ad infinitum. It just never ends. Somewhere somebody must have a little sense, and that's the strong person. The strong person is the person who can cut off the chain of hate, the chain of evil. And that is the tragedy of hate, that it doesn't cut it off. It only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe. Somebody must have religion enough and morality enough to cut it off and inject within the very structure of the universe that strong, powerful element of love. I think I mentioned before that some time ago my brother and I were driving one evening to Chattanooga, Tennessee from Atlanta. He was driving the car. And some, for some reason the drivers were very discourteous that night. They didn't dim their lights. Hardly any driver that passed by dimmed his lights. And I remember very vividly my brother A.D. looked over and in a tone of anger said, I know what I'm going to do. The next car that comes along here and refuses to dim the lights, I'm going to fail to dim mine and pour them on in all of that power. And I looked at him right quick and said, oh, no, don't do that. There'll be too much light on this highway. And it will end up in mutual destruction for all. Somebody got to have some sense on this highway. Somebody must have sense enough to dim the lights. That is the trouble, isn't it? But as all of the civilizations of the world move up the highway of history, so many civilizations have looked at other civilizations that refused to dim the lights, and they decided to refuse to dim theirs. And Tornby tells that out of the 22 civilizations that have risen up, all but about seven have found themselves in the junk heap of destruction. It is because... Civilizations fail to have sense enough to dim the lights. And if somebody doesn't have sense enough to turn on the dim and beautiful and powerful lights of love in this world, the whole of our civilization will be plunged into the abyss of destruction. And we will all end up destroyed because nobody had any sense on the highway of history. Somewhere, somebody must have some sense Men must see that force begets force, hate begets hate, toughness begets toughness, and it is all a descending spiral ultimately ending in destruction for all and everybody. Somebody must have sense enough and morality enough to cut off the chain of hate and the chain of evil in the universe, and you do that by love. That's another reason why you should love your enemies. That is because hate distorts the personality of the hater. We usually think of what hate does for the individual hated or the individuals hated or the groups hated. 
But it is even more tragic, it is even more ruinous and injurious to the individual who hates. You just begin hating somebody and you will begin to do irrational things. You can't see straight when you hate. You can't walk straight when you hate. You can't stand upright. Your vision is distorted. That is nothing more tragic than to see an individual whose heart is filled with hate. He comes to the point that he becomes a pathological case. For the person who hates, you can stand up and see a person and that person can be beautiful and you will call them ugly. For the person who hates the beautiful becomes ugly and the ugly becomes beautiful. For the person who hates the good becomes bad and the bad becomes good. For the person who hates the true becomes false and the false becomes true. That's what hate does. You can't see right. The center of objectivity is lost. Hate destroys the very structure of the personality of the hater. And this is why Jesus says hate. This recording is briefly interrupted at this point. That you want to be integrated with yourself and the way to be integrated with yourself is be sure that you meet every situation of life with an abounding love. Never hate it. Because it ends up in tragic neurotic responses. Psychologists and psychiatrists are telling us today that the more we hate, the more we develop guilt feelings and we begin to subconsciously repress or consciously suppress certain emotions and they all stack up in our subconscious cells and make for tragic neurotic responses and may this not be the neuroses of many individuals as they confront life that that, that is an element of hate there and modern psychology is calling us now to love but long before modern psychology came into being, the world's greatest psychologist who walked around the hills of Galilee told us to love. He looked at men and said, love your enemies, don't hate anybody. It's not enough just to hate your friends because, uh, to, to love your friends, but because when you start hating anybody, it destroys the very center of your creative response to life and the universe. So love everybody. Hate at any point is a cancer that gnaws away the very vital center of your life and your existence. It is like eroding acid that eats away the best and the objective center of your life. So Jesus says, love, because hate destroys the hater as well as the hated. Now that is the final reason I think that Jesus says, love your enemies. It is this, that love has within it a redemptive power. And that is a power there that eventually transforms individuals. That's why Jesus says, love your enemies. Because if you hate your enemies, you have no way to redeem and to transform your enemies. But if you love your enemies, you will discover that at the very root of love is the power of redemption. You just keep loving people and keep loving them, even though they are mistreating you. Here's a person who is a neighbor, and this person is doing something wrong to you, and all of that. Just keep being friendly to that person. Keep loving them. 
Don't do anything to embarrass them. Just keep loving them, and they can't stand it too long. Oh, they react in many ways in the beginning. They react with bitterness because they are mad because you love them like that. They react with guilt feelings, and sometimes they'll hate you a little more at that transition period. But just keep loving them. And by the power of your love, they will break down under the load. That's love, you see. It is redemptive. And this is why Jesus says love. There's something about love that builds up. And it's creative. There is something about hate that tears down and is destructive. So love your enemies. I think one of the best examples of this, we all remember the great president of this United States, Abraham Lincoln. These United States, rather. You remember when Abraham Lincoln was running for president of the United States, there was a man who ran all around the country talking about Lincoln. He said a lot of bad things about Lincoln, a lot of unkind things. And sometimes he would get to the point that he would even talk about his looks, saying you don't want a tall, lanky, ignorant man like this as the president of the United States. He went on and on and on and went around with that type of attitude and wrote about it. Finally, one day, Abraham Lincoln was elected president of the United States. And if you read the great biography of Lincoln, if you read the great works about him, you will discover that as every president comes to the point, he came to the point of having to choose a cabinet. And then came the time for him to choose a secretary of war. He looked across the nation and decided to choose a man by the name of Mr. Stanton. And when Abraham Lincoln stood around his advisors and mentioned this fact, they said to him, Mr. Lincoln, are you a fool? Do you know what Mr. Stanton has been saying about you? Do you know what he has John tried to do to you. Do you know that he has tried to defeat you on every hand? Do you know that, Mr. Lincoln? Did you read all of those derogatory statements that he made about you? Abraham Lincoln stood before the advisors around him and said, Oh, yes, I know about it. I read about it. I've heard him myself. But after looking over the country, I find that he is the best man for the job. Mr. Stanton did become Secretary of War, and a few months later, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. And if you go to Washington, you will discover that one of the greatest words, uh, statements ever made by, about Abraham Lincoln was made about this man, Stanton. And as Abraham Lincoln came to the end of his life, Stanton stood up and said, Now he belongs to the ages. And he made a beautiful statement concerning the character and the stature of this man. If Abraham Lincoln had hated Stanton, if Abraham Lincoln had answered everything Stanton said, Abraham Lincoln would have not transformed and redeemed Stanton. Stanton would have gone to his grave hating Lincoln, and Lincoln would have gone to his grave hating Stanton. But through the power of love, Abraham Lincoln was able to redeem Stanton. That's it. That is a power in love that our world has not discovered yet. Jesus discovered it centuries ago. Mahatma Gandhi of India discovered it a few years ago, but most men and most women never discover it. 
For they believe in hitting for hitting. They believe in an eye for an eye and a two for two. They believe in hating for hating. But Jesus comes to us and says, this isn't the way. No, this morning, as I think of the fact that our world is in transition now, our whole world is facing a revolution. Our nation is facing a revolution. Our nation. One of the things that concerns me most is that in the midst of the revolution of the world, in the midst of the revolution of this nation, that we will discover the meaning of Jesus' words. History, unfortunately, leaves some people oppressed and some people oppressors. And there are three ways that individuals who are oppressed can deal with their oppression. One of them is to rise up against their oppressors with physical violence and corroding hatred. Oh, this isn't the way. For the danger and the weakness of this method is its futility. Violence creates many more social problems than it solves. I said in so many instances that as a Negro, in particular, and colored peoples all over the world struggle for freedom. If they succumb to the temptation of using violence in that struggle, unborn generations will be the recipients of a long and desolate night of bitterness. And our chief legacy to the future will be an endless reign of meaningless chaos. Violence isn't the way. Another way is to acquiesce and to, to give in, to resign yourself to the oppression. Some people do that. They discover the difficulties of the wilderness moving into the promised land. And they would rather go back to the flesh pots of Egypt because it's difficult to get into promised land. And so they resign themselves to the fate of oppression. They somehow acquiesce to this thing. But that too isn't the way because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. That is another way. That is through organized mass nonviolent resistance based on the principle of love. It seems to me that this is the only way as eyes look to the future. As we look out across the years and across the generations, let us develop and move right here. We must discover the power of love, the power, the redemptive power of love. And when we discover that, we will be able to make of this old world a new world. We will be able to make men better. Love is the only way. Jesus discovered that. Not only did Jesus discover it, even great military leaders discovered that. One day as Napoleon came toward the end of his career, Look back across the years, the great Napoleon that at a very early age had all but conquered the world. It was not stopped until he became, till he moved out to the Battle of Leipzig and then to Waterloo. But that same Napoleon one day stood back and looked across the years and said, uh, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have built great empires. But upon what did they depend? They depended upon force. But long ago, Jesus started an empire that depended on love. And even to this day, millions will die for him. Yes, I can see Jesus 
walking around the hills and the valleys of Palestine. I can see him looking out at the Roman Empire with all of her fascinating and intricate military machinery. In the midst of that, I can hear him saying, I will not use this method. Neither will I hate the Roman Empire. This recording is briefly interrupted at this point. I'm just start marching. And I'm proud to stand here in Dexter this morning and say that that army is still marching. It grew up from a group of 11 or 12 men to more than 700 million today because of the power and influence of the personality of this Christ. He was able to split history into A.D. and B.C. Because of his power, he was able to shake the hinges from the gates of the Roman Empire. And all around the world this morning, we can hear the glad echo of heaven ring. Jesus shall reign wherever some of his successive journeys run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore. The moon shall wane and wax no more. We can hear another chorus singing, All hail the power of Jesus' name. We can hear another chorus singing, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah, Hallelujah. We can hear another choir singing, In Christ there is no east or west, In him no north or south. But one great fellowship of love throughout the whole wide world, this is the only way. And our civilization must discover that. Individuals must discover that as they deal with other individuals. That is a little tree planted on a little hill, and on that tree hangs the most influential character that ever came in this world. Never feel that that tree is a meaningless drama that took place on the stages of history. Oh no, it is a telescope through which we look out into the long vista of eternity to see the love of God breaking forth into time. It is an eternal reminder to a power-drunk generation that love is the only way. It is an eternal reminder to a generation depending on nuclear and atomic energy, a generation depending on physical violence, that love is the only creative, redemptive, transforming power in the universe. So this morning, as I look into your eyes, and into the eyes of all my brothers in Alabama and all over America and over the world, I say to you, I love you. I would rather die than hate you. And I'm foolish enough to believe that through the power of this love somewhere, men of the most recalcitrant bent will be transformed. And then we will be in God's kingdom we will be able to matriculate into the university of eternal life because we had the power to love our enemies, to bless those persons that cursed us, to even decide to be good to those persons who hated us, and we even prayed for those persons who despitefully used us. Oh God, help us in our lives and in all of our attitudes to work out this controlling force of love and this controlling power that can solve every problem that we confront in all areas. Oh, we talk about politics. We talk about the problems facing our atomic civilization. 
grant that all men will come together and discover that at the cross of Christ we will solve these problems. The international problems, the problems of atomic energy, problems of nuclear energy, yes, even the race problem. Let us join together in a great fellowship of love and bow down at the feet of Jesus. Give us this strong determination. In the name and spirit of this Christ we pray. Amen. You are listening to a Dr. Martin Luther King Day special on Love Babs Love Talk, streaming live from our studios in downtown New Haven on WNHH LP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But one hundred years later, the Negro still is not free. One hundred years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. One hundred years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. One hundred years later, the Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. And so we've come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check. 
A check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the Bank of Justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time. From the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood, now is the time. Make justice a reality for all of God's children. It would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment. This sweltering summer of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until that is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 1963 is not an end, but a beginning. Those who hope that the Negro needed to blow off steam and will now be content, will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. There will be neither rest nor tranquility in America until the Negro is granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. But that is something that I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice in the process of gaining our rightful place. We must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protest to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. 
the marvelous new militancy which has engulfed the Negro community must not lead us to a distrust of all white people. For many of our white brothers, as evidenced by their presence here today, have come to realize that their destiny is tied up with our destiny. their freedom is inextricably bound to our freedom. We cannot walk alone. And as we walk, we must make the pledge that we shall always march ahead. We cannot turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied. As long as our body is heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I am not my unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells. Some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities. Knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friend, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. 
It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. My poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racist, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. Exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the South with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day, this will be the day when all of God's children be able to sing with new meaning, my country tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so let freedom ring. From the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, let freedom ring. From the mighty mountains of New York, let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, 
Let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. You are listening to a Dr. Martin Luther King Day special on Love Babs Love Talk, streaming live from our studios in downtown New Haven on WNHH LP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. I come this morning to try to preach. And I would like for all of us, the men and women alike, to think with me from the subject, A Knock at Midnight. Our text this morning is taken from one of the familiar parables of our Lord and Master found in the 11th chapter of the Gospel as recorded by St. Luke. It begins at the fifth verse. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend? and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine in his journey is come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. But I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needed. Now this is a parable dealing with the power of persistent prayer. 
But one of the things we always notice about the parables of Jesus is that although they were always told to get over one basic thought, you can usually find in every parable of Jesus great facets of thought not intended as the main point. As I look at this parable, I see within it a basic outline and a basic guide in dealing with many of the problems that we confront in our nation and in the world today and the role of the church. Now, the first thing that we notice in this parable is that it is midnight. It is also midnight in our world today. And we are experiencing a darkness so deep that we can hardly see which way to turn its midnight. It's midnight in the social order. Now, the Middle East has had the headlines over the last few days, but it should not all cause us to forget that there is another war. It's a futile, bloody, costly war taking place on Asian soil. We look over to Vietnam and what do we see? We see the rice fields of a little Asian country being burned at will and trampled at whim. We see innocent peasants and little children being burned with napalm. Then we see the fine young men of our country dying in mounting numbers. All of this is indicative of the fact that it's midnight. The nations of the world are engaged in a bitter and tragic contest for supremacy. And you see, the real danger is that if we don't change our course in this world, all of the modern weapons of warfare will soon conspire to bring an untimely death to the human family on this globe. late President Kennedy was right, mankind must put an end to war. A war will put an end to mankind. Not only is it midnight in man's collective life, but it's midnight in his individual life. It's midnight in the psychological order. All right, yeah. 
People are more worried, more frustrated, more bewildered today than at any period of human history. So many of us find that clouds of anxiety are floating in our mental skies, the psychopathic wards of our hospitals are full today. Who are the popular psychologists today? They are the psychoanalysts who delve into the inner chambers of the subconscious. What are the popular books in psychology? They are books entitled Man Against Himself, Modern Man in Such of a Soul, the Neurotic Personality of Our Times. What are the popular books, the bestsellers in religion today? They are books entitled Peace of Mind, Peace of Soul, and who are the popular preachers? They are so often preachers who would preach nice little soothing sermons on how to be happy, how to relax, how to keep your blood pressure down, and so we have retranslated the gospel to read, Go ye into all the world and keep your blood pressure down, and lo, I will make you a well-adjusted personality. All of this is indicative of the fact that it is midnight in the psychological order. Not only that, it's midnight in the moral order. Midnight is a time when all colors lose their distinctiveness and everything becomes merely a dirty shade of gray. In the sense of the moral order, midnight is a time when all moral values lose their distinctiveness. And so in our world today, for so many people, there's nothing absolutely right, nothing absolutely wrong. Just a matter of what the majority of people are doing. Over and over again, we see this. Most people live by the philosophy, everybody is doing it, so it must be all right. It's midnight in the moral order. And you know, midnight is a time when... uh, Everybody's trying to get by. And this is exactly what we have done so often. We have ended up with our ethical relativism feeling that the only thing right is to get by. And the only thing wrong is to get caught. And so today we don't talk about the 
Darwinian survival of the fittest. That was the theory that came along, but for us it's a philosophy of the survival of the slickest. Nobody is concerned about obeying the Ten Commandments in so many instances. They are not important. Everybody is busy trying to obey the Eleventh Commandment. Thou shalt not get caught. <laughs> According to this tragic philosophy, it's all right to lie, but just lie with a bit of finesse. It's all right to exploit and rob, but be a dignified exploiter so that when you do it, it becomes embezzlement rather than just stealing. It's all right even to hate, but dress your hate in the garments of love and make it appear that you are loving when you are actually hating. Just get by. This tragic moral laxity, this tendency to be caught up in the chains of conformity is destroying the soul of our nation, the soul of the world, and so many individuals. We find ourselves today standing in the midst of a threefold midnight midnight in the social order, it's midnight in the psychological order, it's midnight in the moral order, but as in the parable so in our world today, the deep darkness of the midnight is interrupted by a knock. The parable talked about this man seeking three loaves of bread, physical bread, in our world today, men and women are in search for three loaves of spiritual bread. They want the bread of faith. So many people have lost faith in themselves. They've lost faith in their neighbors. They've lost faith in God. And in the midst of this faithlessness, they find themselves crying out, Lord, I believe, but help by mine unbelief. They want the bread of faith. And then that is a quest for the bread of hope. Everybody needs this bread. Everybody wants it. When you stop hoping, you die. And yet so many people have lost hope today. They feel that they have nothing to look forward to. So many young people have lost hope. They have become cynical. They see all of the problems of the world. So many young men feel that there's nothing to look forward uh, to in life but going to the battlefield, giving one's life maybe in something very futile. They look around the world and they lose hope. So many people find themselves crying out with Shakespeare's Macbeth that life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. So many find themselves crying out with the philosopher Schopenhauer 
that life is an endless pain with a painful end. So many find themselves crying out with Paul Lawrence Dunbar, crust of bread and a corner to sleep in, a minute to smile and an hour to weep in, a pint of joy to a peck of trouble and never to laugh that the moans come double and that is life. In the midst of this hopelessness, men and women reach out for the bread of hope. Then that is the quest for the bread of love. Everybody needs this bread. We need it in two ways. First, we need to learn how to love. The great problem of mankind today is still that there's too much hatred around. More than anything else, we've got to learn to love. In America, the white man must love the black man, and the black man must love the white man, because we are all tied together in a single garment of destiny. And we can't keep having riots every summer in our cities. We can't keep having all of these problems all over our nation. Our white brothers must understand that we are too poor, and the federal government has enough money to get rid of slums and poverty and get rid of these conditions that make for riots. There's no point in continuing to make up excuses. Our white brothers have got to come to see one thing. We are in America, and we are here to stay, and we've got to learn how to live together. We ain't going nowhere. That's a basic need in this country. There are 22 million Negroes that we have counted up. The census figures give us that. Now, they don't take under consideration the number of Negroes that ran when they saw the census man coming, thinking it was somebody to collect the bill. So when you add the numbers they didn't get, it's at least 30 million Negroes in America. And we are here to stay. And our white brothers have got to learn to live with us. Now, in our anger and in our response to the oppression and the hatred that we face, we must not, you know, turn around and do the same thing. You see, you never solve one problem of tyranny by substituting a new tyranny. A doctrine of black supremacy is as evil as a doctrine of white supremacy. God is not interested merely in the freedom of black men and brown men and yellow men, but God is interested in the freedom of the whole human race. And the creation of a society where all men will live together as brothers, and every man will respect the dignity and the worth of human personality. And the one way that Every man will be able to do this is to remember that one word that Jesus talked about so often. And that is the word love. 
So in the midnight hour, the life of our world and our nation, I see men and women by the thousands running toward the church of God, trying to get the bread of faith, the bread of hope, and the bread of love. Now go with me a little further, if you will. You remember when that man knocked on the door? The man on the inside said, in substance, don't bother me. I'm busy, my children are in the bed, and I'm engaged in something else. Don't worry me. So that man from within left the man on the outside disappointed at the hour of his greatest need. And oh, my friends of Mount Zion, I come to you this morning having to honestly admit that the church has often left men and women disappointed at the greatest hour of need, the hour that they needed bread most. This recording is briefly interrupted at this point. I stood in Westminster Abbey not long ago in London, that great cathedral of the Church of England. I had a marvelous experience on the one hand, an enrapturing experience. One cannot help but be moved by the beauty of the architecture with all of its Gothic outpourings. On the other hand, I had a sad experience because I had to remember that there was a day when they can honestly say that the sun never sets on the British Empire. They could say that because more than 785 million of God's children were dominated by the British Empire. And the Church of England never took a significant stand against colonialism. And I stood there in Westminster Abbey over the tombs of kings and queens that had been buried there. And I said to myself, the church can die as a result of the judgment of God, as a result of refusing to stand up against evil. And so often, the church has left men and women disappointed at midnight. And there are men who stand up in the pulpit and preach every Sunday. Speaking now of white preachers, and yet they can look at racial injustice and never open their mouths against it. We would have peace in this world today. We could have peace in this world today. The church would really take a stand against it. There are almost a billion Christians in the world. Never forget that. We got to go back to the fervor of the early church. Early Christians would not fight war. Amen. Stood up before Caesar and Caesar's household. Yes. Said, no, we will not fight war. Sometimes because they wouldn't obey the, 
the edicts of the Roman Empire. They were thrown into the lion's den. They were thrown on the chopping block. And they went there with a hymn on their lips and praises to God. And they often went there smiling. And somebody would say, what is it that makes you so happy? Is it in your ecclesiastical machinery? No. Is it in your creedal system? No, it's not merely that. What is it then? We are happy and we are inspired because we love the brethren. That is what it is. We've got to recapture that. I don't want to sound provincial and say that all of the problems are just the so-called white church. The Negro church has often left men and women disappointed at midnight. We have two types of Negro churches that leave men disappointed at midnight. One uh, freezes up and the other one burns up. Now, the one that freezes up is that church, you know, that says it's a dignified church. And, uh, The preacher preaches a nice little uh, essay on Sunday. And he's really afraid to get in his sermon and say it like he really means it and believes it. And then the choir is afraid to sing with meaning and power and They don't sing Negro spirituals and gospel songs because that reminds them of their heritage. So they're, you know, they're busy trying to be, they're ashamed that they're black. And uh, they're ashamed that their ancestral home was Africa. And so they, they major on trying to build a church that has no relationship whatsoever Uh, with their past. And then, of course, they boast about their members. They go on to tell you, if you go there, we have so many doctors. We have so many lawyers. And we have so many school teachers. And we have so many business men. And, of course, it's good for all of these people to be in church. All professional people should go to church. But you see, they say it as if the other people don't count. <laughs> the other people who didn't get to get to be a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, talk, they talk like the other people don't count. <laughs> Not as another church that burns up. Now in this church, The emphasis is on musclality rather than spirituality. <laughs> and in this kind of church, people have more religion in their hands and feet than they have in their hearts and souls. Uh, 
In this church, sometimes even the pastor doesn't prepare his son to preach. He just depends on his voice, on volume, not content. And the people leave on Sunday and say, you know, we had a great service today, and the preacher just preached this morning. And somebody said, what did he say? I don't know what he said, but he preached this morning. Now, the, the danger of this kind of church is that people will play with God. The danger of this kind of church is that people will make religion irrelevant. It becomes merely emotionalism. Now, religion, when it is real, is emotional as well as intellectually meaningful and respectable. But it is emotional. But the danger this time of religion is that the pastor and the members will have what Paul called a zeal of God not according to knowledge. When I quoted that passage earlier, it said, not only love the Lord thy God with all our heart, but it said, with all our mind. Yeah. Yeah. The other danger of this kind of church is that everybody involved will become so caught up in the irrelevant that they will not be concerned about the day-to-day problems. Seems that I can hear the God of the universe saying, Don't play with me and don't play with my people. Seems that I can hear the God of the universe speaking to the Negro church and the white church also. He's saying, My people are hungry. They're in need of bread. Don't play with me and don't play with them. They come at midnight seeking bread provided for them. If you don't do that, I won't hear your beautiful answer. You can preach your eloquent sermons. You can pray your powerful prayers, but I won't hear any of it. Because your hands are full of blood, the thing that I'm concerned about is that you will let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. And if you want to know what it is that I require of you, it's simply this. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God. This is what I require. We must never leave men and women disappointed at midnight. Come on with me a little further, and I'm about to close out, but there are one or two other things I want to say. The interesting thing is that after that man knocked on that door, the man on the inside didn't open the door. The man on the outside kept knocking. The passage uses the big word, importunity. Importunity means persistence. Perseverance, it means, you know, to, to keep on keeping on. Yeah. It means staying with it. 
says that that man just kept knocking. Now, if you would allow me to use my imagination a minute, I'll tell you why he kept knocking. Well, he realized that there's some bread in that house. You see, if he had thought for one minute that there wasn't any bread in that house, he would have gone on to the... To the next house. He wouldn't have been wasting his time around there after he had been disappointed if he had thought there was no bread there. But deep down within, that man knew that there was some bread in that house. No, this is what we must hear today as a church. This is what I want to leave with the men here this morning and all of the members. Mount Zion, you have the bread of life. Keep the bread fresh. Don't get, don't let it get stale because somebody is coming by here to try to find a little bread. Some young man disillusioned about life is going to come by here one day to try to get the bread of faith and the bread of hope. Keep it fresh. Some young person who has made a mistake in life, oh, yes. and caught up in tragic guilt feelings, will come by here one day. Somebody who's made a mistake, some young person who tried to drown the guilt by finding an answer elsewhere. They tried to find it in the nightclub. They didn't find it there. Tried to find it in excessive drink, they didn't find it there. They tried to find it in sex promiscuity, they didn't find it there. But one day they're coming by here, wanting the bread of forgiveness. And, and you've got to keep it fresh enough to let them know that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Keep the bread fresh. One day some old person is coming by. Someone who has been through the morning of childhood and the noon of adulthood, and now they are moving toward the evening of life. They're worried about bad health. They're worried about death. They need a little bread to tide them over. One day they are coming by. Keep the bread fresh enough to let them know. They don't have to worry about death if they love God. Keep the bread fresh enough to let them know that death is not a period which ends this great sentence of life, but a comma that punctuates it to more loftier significance. Keep the bread fresh enough to let them know that death is not a blind alley that leads the human race into a state of nothingness, but an open door that leads men into life eternal. Keep the bread fresh enough to crowd one day. I am persuaded that neither life nor death, angels nor principalities, things present nor things to come, can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Keep the bread fresh. We have the bread of life in the church. It is our job to keep it fresh. I'm coming on home now. But I don't want to sit down for fear. You may go away despondent. I've talked about midnight. Talked about darkness. 
But my last point is that that man who knocked on the door was just trying to get enough bread to tide him over until the dawn. He knew that morning would come. And I want to leave you this morning letting you know that however dark it is now, morning will come. Therefore, I'm not worried about tomorrow. There is a pendulum swinging in life, I guess. It goes between darkness and light, midnight and morning. And our slave foreparents taught us so much. And that beautiful sorrow song, one of which you sang so beautifully this morning. They looked at the midnight surrounding their days. They knew that there was sorrow and agony and hurt all around. When they thought about midnight, they would sing, Nobody knows the trouble I see. Nobody knows but Jesus, but pretty soon something reminded them that morning would come and they started singing, I'm so glad that trouble don't last always. This is it, my friend. I get kind of disillusioned about the race problem. I get worried about Alabama and I get worried about Georgia and I get worried about all of these other places and I get worried about the white backlash. Then ever and again, I go back to Alabama. Mm-hmm. And the boss says to me, God has not yet turned his world over to Governor Wallace. Right. Well, and I can hear another voice saying, the earth is the Lord. Yeah. And the fullness thereof. All right, all right. Morning will come. Yes, Centuries ago, Jeremiah, the great prophet, raised a very profound question. He looked at the inequities around and he noticed a lot of things. He noticed the good people so often suffering and the evil people so often prospering. Jeremiah raised the question, is there no bomb in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Centuries later, our slave foreparents came along, and they too confronted the problems of life. They had nothing to look forward to morning after morning but the sizzling heat, the rawhide whip of the overseer, long rolls of cotton. But they did an amazing thing. They looked back across the centuries. They took Jeremiah's question mark and straightened it into an exclamation point, and they could sing, There is a bomb in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a bomb in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. Then they came with another verse. Sometimes I feel discouraged. I don't mind telling you this morning, sometimes... I feel discouraged. Well, sometimes as I move about dealing with the race problem, I feel discouraged. 
having to live every day under the threat of death, there are times that I feel discouraged. Living with all kinds of abuse and criticism and misunderstanding, I feel discouraged sometimes. I go on back and listen to all of that verse. Sometimes I feel discouraged and feel my works in vain, but then the Holy Spirit revives my soul again. There is a bomb in Gideon. And so I can sing that and another song comes to me. I've seen the lightning flash. I've heard the thunder roll. I've felt sin breakers dashing trying to conquer my soul. But I heard the voice of Jesus saying still to fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. You are listening to a Dr. Martin Luther King Day special on Love Babs Love Talk, streaming live from our studios in downtown New Haven on WNHH LP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. Sometimes it's overlooked. It is one of it is not one of the most familiar passages in the Old Testament. But I never will forget when I first came across it. It struck me as a passage having cosmic significance because it says so much in so few words about things that we all experience in life. David, as you know, was a great king. And the one thing that was foremost in David's mind and in his heart was to build a great temple. The building of the temple was considered to be the most significant thing facing the Hebrew people, and the king was expected to bring this into being. David had the desire. He started. And then we come to that passage over in the 8th chapter of 1 Kings, which reads, And it was in the heart of David, my father, to build an house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And the Lord said unto David, my father, Whereas it was in thine heart to build a house unto my name, thou didst well that it was within thine heart. That's really what I want to talk about this morning. It is well that it was within thine heart. As if to say, David, you will not be able to finish the temple. You will not 
be able to build it. But I just want to bless you because it was within thine heart. Your dream will not be fulfilled. The majestic hopes that guided your days will not be carried out in terms of an actual temple coming into being that you were able to build. But I bless you, David, because it was within thine heart. You had the desire to do it. You had the intention to do it. You tried to do it. You started to do it. And I bless you for having the desire and the intention in your heart. It is well that it was within thine heart. So many of us in life start out building temples, temples of character, temples of justice, temples of peace. So often we don't finish them. Because life is like a Schubert's unfinished symphony. At so many points we start, we try. We set out to build our various temples. And I guess one of the great agonies of life is that we are constantly trying to finish that which is unfinishable. We are commanded to do that. And so we, like David, find ourselves in so many instances having to face the fact that our dreams are not fulfilled. Now let us notice first that life is a continual story of shattered dreams. Mahatma Gandhi labored for years and years for the independence of his people through a powerful nonviolent revolution. He was able to win that independence for years. The Indian people have been dominated politically, exploited economically, segregated and humiliated by foreign powers, and Gandhi struggled against it. He struggled to unite his own people, and nothing was greater in his mind than to have India as one Great united country moving toward a higher destiny. This was his dream. But Gandhi had to face the fact that he was assassinated and died with a broken heart because that nation that he wanted to unite ended up being divided between India and Pakistan as a result of the conflict between the Hindus and the Muslims. Life is a long, continual story 
of setting out to build the great temple and not being able to finish it. Woodrow Wilson dreamed the dream of a League of Nations, but he died before the promise was delivered. The Apostle Paul talked one day about wanting to go to Spain. It was Paul's greatest dream to go to Spain, to carry the gospel there. Paul never got to Spain. He ended up in a prison cell in Rome. This is the story of life. So many of our forebears used to sing about freedom. They dreamed of the day that they would be able to get out the bosom of slavery, the long night of injustice. They used to sing little songs. Nobody knows the trouble I see. Nobody knows but Jesus. They thought about a better day as they dreamed that dream. And they would say, I'm so glad the trouble don't last always. By and by, by and by, I'm going to lay down my heavy load. And they used to sing it because of a powerful dream. So many died without having the dream fulfilled. And each of you this morning, in some way, is building some kind of temple. The struggle is always there. It gets discouraging sometimes. It gets very disenchanting sometimes. Some of us are trying to build a temple of peace. We speak out against war, we protest, but it seems that your head is going against a concrete wall. It seems to mean nothing. So often as you set out to build the temple of peace, you're left lonesome. You're left discouraged. You're left bewildered. Well, it is the story of life and the thing that makes me happy is that I can hear the voice crying through the vista of time saying, it may not come today or it may not come tomorrow, but it is well that it is within thine heart. It's well that you are trying. You may not see it. The dream may not be fulfilled, but, but it's just good that you have a desire to bring it into reality. It's well that it's in thine heart. Thank God this morning that we do have hearts to put something meaningful in. Life is a continual story of shattered dreams. Now let me bring out another point. Whenever you set out to build a creative temple, whatever it may be, you must face the fact that there is a tension 
at the heart of the universe between good and evil. It's there. A tension at the heart of the universe between good and evil. Hinduism refers to this as a struggle between illusion and reality. Platonic philosophy used to refer to it as a tension between body and soul. Zoroastrianism, a religion of old, used to refer to it as a tension between the god of light and the god of darkness. Traditional Judaism and Christianity refer to it as a tension between God and Satan. Whatever you call it, that is a struggle in the universe between good and evil. Now, not only is that struggle structured out somewhere in the external forces of the universe, it's structured in our own lives. Psychologists have tried to grapple with it in their way, and so they say various things. Sigmund Freud used to say that this tension is a tension between what he called the id and the superego. But you know, some of us feel that it's a tension between God and man. And in every one of us this morning, there's a war going on. It's a civil war. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you live. There is a civil war going on in your life. And every time you set out to be good, there's something pulling on you, telling you to be evil. It's going on in your life. Every time you set out to love, something keeps pulling on you, trying to get you to hate. Every time you set out to be kind and say nice things about people, something is pulling on you to be jealous and envious and to spread evil gossip about them. There's a civil war going on. Every time you say that I'm not going to let this evil habit destroy me, something keeps pulling on you, saying, keep on doing it. That is a schizophrenia, as the psychologist or the psychiatrist would call it, going on within all of us. And there are times that all of us know somehow that there's a Mr. Hyde and a Dr. Jekyll in us. We end up having to crowd with all that the Latin poet, I see and approve the better things of life, but the evil things I do. We end up having to agree with Plato that the human personality is like a charioteer with two headstrong horses, each wanting to go in different directions. Sometimes we even have to end up crying out with St. Augustine as he said in his confessions, Lord, make me pure, but not yet. We end up crying out with the Apostle Paul, 
the good that I would, I do not, and the evil that I would not, that I do. And we end up having to say with Gerda that there's enough stuff in me to make both a gentleman and a rogue. Tension at the heart of human nature. And whenever we set out to dream our dreams and to build our temples, we must be honest enough to recognize it. And this brings me to the basic point of the text. In the final analysis, God does not judge us. by the separate incidents or the separate mistakes that we make, but by the total bent of our lives. And the final analysis, God knows that his children are weak and they're frail. And the final analysis, what God requires is that your heart is right. Salvation isn't reaching the destination of absolute morality, but it's being in the process and on the right road. There's a highway called Highway 80. I've marched on that highway from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery. But I never will forget my first experience with Highway 80 was driving with Coretta and Ralph and Juanita Abernathy to California. We drove from Montgomery all the way to Los Angeles on Highway 80. It drove all the way out to Los Angeles. And you know, being a good man, being a good woman, does not mean that you've arrived in Los Angeles. It simply means that you're on Highway 80. Maybe you haven't gotten as far as Selma, or maybe you haven't gotten as far as Meridian, Mississippi, or, or Monroe, Louisiana. That isn't the question. The question is whether you're on the right road. Salvation is being on the right road, not having reached the destination. Oh, we have to finally face the point that there is none good but the Father. But if you're on the right road, God has the power, and he has something called grace. Puts you where you ought to be. Now, the terrible thing in life is to be trying to get to Los Angeles on Highway 78. That's when you're lost. That sheep was lost not merely because he was doing something wrong in that parable, but he was on the wrong road. And he didn't even know where he was going. He became so involved in what he was doing, nibbling sweet grass, that he got on the wrong road. Salvation is being sure that you're on the right road. It is well. That's what I like about it. That it was within thy heart. 
Some weeks ago, somebody was saying something to me about a person that I have great, magnificent respect for. And they were trying to say something that didn't sound too good about his character, something he was doing. And I said, number one, I don't believe it. But number two, even if he is, he's a good man because his heart is right. And in the final analysis, God isn't going to judge him by that little separate mistake that he's making. Because the bent of his life is right. The question I want to raise this morning with you, is your heart right? If your heart isn't right, fix it up today. Get God to fix it up. Get somebody to be able to say about you. You may not have reached the highest height. He may not have realized all of his dreams, but he tried. Isn't that a wonderful thing for somebody to say about you? He tried to be a good man. He tried to be a just man. He tried to be an honest man. His heart was in the right place. I can hear the voice saying, crying out through the eternities, I accept you. You are the recipient of my grace because it was in your heart. And it is so well that it was within thine heart. I don't know this morning about you, but I can make a testimony. You don't need to go out this morning saying that Martin Luther King is a saint. Oh, no. I want you to know this morning that I'm a sinner like all of God's children. But I want to be a good man. And I want to hear a voice saying to me one day, I take you in and I bless you because you try. It is well that it was within thy heart. What's in your heart this morning? Get your heart right. Hi, this is Babs Rawls-Ivy from New Haven, Connecticut, and you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, streaming live at newhavenindependent.org. 